Greetings, space enthusiast. You're now tuned into Space Forward. We're your hosts, Hussein Bukhari <laughs> Kelly Kowalski. Get ready to embark on an interstellar expedition with forward-thinking space visionaries who are making our space future a reality. Everybody could use a little dab of strategic foresight in every aspect of moving space forward. It's a really useful tool to help us think about new creative solutions together. But I think it also can help us kind of anticipate and prevent some of those some of those cliffhangers that maybe we're not really seeing. Space is hard. Um, you know, we're, we're figuring out propulsion pretty well, but like there's other hard things. I mean, humans in space is a very challenging problem. And, and again, these unanticipated consequences of rolling out new technology or building things before they come. Foresighting can help make sure that those are kind of addressed and synchronized and, and also help us reach, reach beyond, you know, get, get us to a, moon, a real moonshot. Join us for a space forward thinking conversation with Kara Kunzman, Systems Director of Strategic Foresight at the Aerospace Corporation's Center for Space Policy and Strategy. Kara talks to us about strategic foresight, a holistic approach that takes the long view, helping us to face future uncertainties and go beyond the status quo to arrive at a preferred future. So buckle up and blast off into some future space forward scenarios with Kara Kunzman. Welcome to Space Forward. Yay. <laughs> Thank Thanks you. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Kelly. Same. Yes. Are we ready for this? <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. I'm, I'm letting okay. you start. You're start. Oh, no, I'm starting. Yes, yeah, sorry. You're starting. Yes, oh, you are. Cool. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, thanks, uh, Kara, for coming on on uh, our show here. And I think we just want to start off with, you know, Aerospace Corporation, where you work, is a nonprofit that provides insights to all kinds of uh, space actors within the United States, like government, civilian, commercial players. Um, and I've been reading your assessment reports, and there's the term uh, the space enterprise. Let's just start off defining what is the space enterprise from your perspective. Oh, that well, that's a loaded question. We'll start <laughs> off with the hard one. Um, space <laughs> enterprise actually means a lot of different things to different uh, groups of folks within the enterprise. I think from you know the standpoint of you know the team that I work for, strategic foresighting within the Center for Space Policy and Strategy, we really do mean enterprise at its like broadest level. So commercial, civil, uh, civilian space, private space, government space, the whole shebang, right? So space enterprise is the the broad ecosystem that incorporates not just space activity but also Earth activity and how those are inter intermingled. And as I think. Many of the, the folks that listen to these podcasts kind of understand space is part of everything, right? So it's this kind of bigger extended ecosystem than maybe what people might think of as just like, oh, satellites and Leo. It's it's actually quite broader than that. And, and maybe the most interesting parts are actually the human pieces of the space enterprise. Yeah, that's interesting. It's funny. I think the public thinks of it more as beyond Leo, whereas the space people think of it is orbital. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's a good point too. Generally. Yep. These Generally. loaded terms that we have to clarify. <laughs> so that's so that's interesting, right? Just to follow on there, just try to better understand. I mean, why is it that we um or at least in the in the in the taxonomy that is defined globally per se uh, around space, why is 
is, is it different across the value chain? Um, is it because there is a lack of standardization? I mean, enterprise requires that there is a commercial element to it, right? Huge mm-hmm. commercial element to it mm-hmm. because that's it's very um, non-specific per se. So do we not believe that there is a future on the moon or a future on Mars in terms of when it comes to space enterprise? Oh, no, I think we absolutely do. I think it's a symptom of the the exciting fact that things are changing, right? You know, traditionally, right, like, you know, back in the, you know, 50s, 60s, space was primarily a government domain. And that has radically shifted and is continuing to radically shift. And so our language and how we define our systems is changing. But I think as we move forward, like what goes in that ecosystem, uh, will extend into cislunar and beyond. I mean, it, it is in, you know, with, with some respect of civil systems, but, but with respect of humanity writ large. And I think that's what's really exciting. And I think, again, the crux of the discussion is really about um, the economic sustainability um, mm-hmm. that's present as well, right? So as, as economics start playing in a factor, that definition is going to change. Yeah, and that that evolution of definition, I guess, um, one of the things that we wanted to dig into to get our audience better understand is something that you guys call strategic foresight. Um, and and I think, what is it? Why use it as a methodology for understanding the current and future space environment? Oh my God, it's such a good question. I feel like the term is just like this mystical unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> that everybody's either like really intrigued by or scared of. And it's actually quite straightforward, right? It's just better methodologies for managing uncertainty. Like it's that simple. Um, and so, you know, a little bit of background, right? I, I'm i a trained kind of space geek, um, but traditionally I've been doing systems engineering type roles, you know, my whole career. And systems engineers typically think at the the broader picture level anyways. And I was starting to recognize um, on a couple of very large kind of big question projects, engineers were trying to solve strategy problems with engineering solutions, and it wasn't working. And so that's kind of what led me down the path of like, well, what are kind of sound and robust decision-making frameworks? And that's how I landed in strategic foresighting. Um, So it's a discipline. It's, you know, it was kind of coined back in the, you know, 1900s, but really, I would say is, you know, and had some surges kind of, as the, you know, World War II was ending, and then kind of in the 70s, and then in the 90s, and then now after the pandemic, we're seeing this other surge. So there's been kind of like this roller coaster of it being trendy and not trendy. Um, But I would argue the actual application of foresight is really in its infancy. Um, And I think we're just starting to grapple with what are the approaches for applying foresighting for effective decision-making. Cool. Well, I, I, I was going to say, you know, you wrote a great paper um, about it, that there's so many good papers that you can read on Aerospace Corporation's website, easy to download. Um, but one of them was talking about the four archetypes, which I see as almost like these, as a media person, the four future storylines that can be played out. Um and I'm curious, you know, could you explain to us what those four scenarios are and if there's any way you can briefly sketch out how that would look in the future? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So and for those that are interested, you can literally just Google CSPS Aerospace and it'll our website will pop up and you can Google all sorts of different papers and stuff. And um, the paper you're referring to is called Foresight for the Space Enterprise, um, where we were 
trying to simplify this, you know, application of foresighting to space for just kind of broad consumption. Um, and we, you know, kind of identified 10 critical factors that we thought would shape the corner cases of the future. And we used Jim Dater, who's a colleague and friend of mine. We used what, what is called the Jim Dater model. He, he used to teach at University of Hawaii at Manoa. Um, and it's really focused on four different archetypes of the future. Um, one is growth, one is um, collapse, one is discipline, and one is transformation. And the idea here is that these futures aren't necessarily predictive in a silo by themselves, like future A versus future B. It's really to make sure that you're covering the idea of the art of the possible across these future states. So, you know, one could argue there's infinite futures that could be created that may or may not be considered. But the four archetypes is a really interesting way to look at futures in its most distilled form and still feel confident that you're looking at uh, the corner cases so you can build kind of resilient strategies and plans towards them. So anyways, there's and, and there's actually three or four, I would say, pretty solid approaches to designing futures. And this was just one way. So there's no right or wrong way. This is just the way we chose for the paper. Um, and we focused on kind of four different states. The first was um, kind of this growth model, which is status kind of an elevation of status quo. So modest expansion of space capabilities and how that would kind of evolve and some of the opportunities and tensions that kind of arise with, you know, the growth of the commercial sector. Um, we also looked at collapse, which was focused kind of on we called it no escape velocity from Earth's problems, which really was just citing like we kind of are holding ourselves back um, for a variety of reasons. And again, you know, we created a scenario that kind of talks to, um, you know, climate and resource scarcity as being a big driver, but it doesn't necessarily matter what what the thing is that's holding you back, rather that you consider that there is a future where you're held back and you need to start planning for how you can prevent that. Um, Discipline, which was really looking at um, putting out autonomous systems and artificially intelligent systems first before humans. Um, and then transformation was really kind of throwing in uh, humankind at scale, exploring and living and, you know, having an economic kind of uh, standing in space. And so those were the four kind of corner cases. And then we kind of walk through um, individually, what are the opportunities and challenges? And then you step back and you kind of look uh, again in the, the lens of space enterprise. What are the big takeaways? What are the critical uncertainties? What are things that we think we need to actively shape now? Um, and again, just proving that it's valuable to use frameworks like this because there's so there's so much complexity and there's so much uncertainty that just being naive and saying, this is the future I want, or this is the future I'm predicting, and I'm going to work only in that lens, and I'm only going to look at the next year, that's insufficient. But that's that's interesting, right? Because, I mean, when it comes to exploration and uncertainty, I think they go hand in hand, right? Because you have to be able to take risk, like, you know, one of your model kind of showcases that it's mm -hmm, mm -hmm. risk-driven. But the question is that hasn't humanity always un have face uncertainty? So why are we considering um, thinking about uncertainty now and factoring that in as we think about the future? Like, hasn't it been considered when folks were on the ocean uh, or were trying to get an airplane in the air? So I'm just curious about what you think there. This is a really good question. Um, so yes, like life 
has embedded uncertainty into it. And we we say VUCA that I think broaderly kind of characterizes it. So volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, right? Life has always been VUCA. Um, I think one can kind of make two points to why foresighting is kind of seeing a next wave of impact and application. Um, you know, first, we are living in a highly networked world, and the rate of change is increasing and being felt by us because we're much more aware of that change. Um, and secondly, I think we're also starting to see frameworks develop that are challenging traditional status quo approaches to a singular predicted future. So it's not that, um, you know, if, if there were foresighting frameworks 600 years ago that were actually being adequately used, they probably would certainly benefit. But I think we're starting to see that like our traditional approaches in managing uncertainty are insufficient. And I don't think I have to throw out wild examples of why they're insufficient, right? We're still seeing major changes in climate crises. We're still seeing major um, problems with resources and poverty that probably needs to be questioned, right, globally. So we're, we're seeing heightened contention and conflict. So I think there's a lot to be said about challenging are we approaching our futures and our present with the right frameworks? Good question. <laughs> and there's a lot there to unpack. I, I was just going to move on a little bit to your, well, it's really a parallel uh, project that you were doing the, the, I guess, the Pathfinder's Guide, which um, seems like sort of a fun, interactive uh, hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy. <laughs> All right. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Space Enterprise. Um, it's worth checking out. It's sort of this interactive map in a sense, and there's different concepts and connections and that you can interact with and learn about kind of potential future outcomes of space. I'm curious, you, you designed it collaboratively, it sounds like to me, as I understand it. So, you know, who are these people that you, you gathered together to kind of come up with the anticipating what these potential, you know, future trends might be? Yeah. Oh my gosh. This was maybe one of the most fun projects we've ever. So our original Pathfinder's Guide was actually just a, a map. And while we have foresight, and interestingly enough, one of the, the biggest space shocks that we have on the list is a global pandemic. We weren't anticipating one to actually happen. So when we designed it, we designed it to be a physical map that we would hand out to folks that they could carry around with them. They could put it on their desk. And so anyways, we we ended up turning it into a PDF and providing instructions for people to print it off on their own. But we wanted a physical map that people could touch and see. And it took a lot of design effort to think about how we wanted this to be represented. We probably had like 10 or 10 or so different models. Um, so the initial instantiation of it was developed internally to aerospace. And we're fortunate where we have uh, an incredible reach back capacity. We have about 4,500 scientists and engineers. And so we pulled in over 70 uh, for this activity of numerous kind of foresighting activities, brainstorming, and then sketching this out with our graphic artists and really thinking about what are the critical the potential critical intersection points and what that might you know be so we had these what we call artifacts of the future so different kind of um representations of what 
could come out of these um, intersection points. So thinking about, um, you know, AIs as the key decision maker rather than humans or uh, a national celestial graphic, right? Instead of National Geographic, you have, you know, this um, magazine that travels the universe and takes pictures and documents it. So there's these different kind of models of thinking about not necessarily predicting what the future is going to look like, but using it as a way to seed thinking about the future and having folks look at opportunities or challenges or things that they would want to change or questions that they have. And so it was really exciting for us to do that 2D format. Then we decided we wanted to try to to make it interactive. And so the second wave actually incorporated perspectives at these key intersection points from around the world. So we had, you know, our, our friends over at International Space University we had Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts talk about what they want the future to look like of space. And we embedded those videos in this interactive map that's, we call it our Futures Map 2.0, that we had our engineers code in Unity. And it really is like the first of its kind. And we did this on a shoestring budget. And I, you know, can only imagine if we we could, you know, really gamify this. It could be even better on the next round. Um, but we wanted to make it immersive and we wanted to make it very visual because I think a lot of it's really hard to read like a four-page scenario and imagine what that could look like. We wanted people to actually have something visual to refer to. And we're really looking forward to kind of like our next generation version of this product, which we're just starting to work on as well. Well, I, you know, first of all, I think in terms of, you know, foresighting, it's one thing. Putting that foresight into something visual, it's in a completely different thing. And the way that um, the way that you guys have put it together it's not just fascinating but it's also alarming in a matter of speaking <laughs> so you know because we as human beings have to consider two two perspectives that there is this optimistic element that you know we everything happens for the benefit of humanity but there's always some bad actors so what would you say that um when it comes to considering that you might be opening a can of worms that you might not be able to close ever when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to foresighting. Yeah, no, these are these are great questions. And that honestly is exactly the kind of thinking we wanted people to have when they looked at the map, right? Um, I, I consider myself a pretty balanced futurist. I would say at heart, I'm an optimist, but I'm also a realist, right? And I think all good futures work isn't inherently looking at opportunity or challenges. It's looking at the dynamics between them and then the choices that we have and the action that we take. So mm. foresighting in my book is not foresighting unless action is taken in the present um, mm. based on those insights. Um, so I would say, you know, obviously we're talking about the future of humanity in space. There's a couple of critical ones that we bring up in the map and in our paper. Um, you know, one is obviously the the sustainability. And, and I don't just mean, um, you know, from a, from a space debris perspective, but also from a technical perspective, from an ethical perspective, um, from a governance perspective, uh, and a commercial perspective, an economic standpoint. Are we, are we creating a sustainable space enterprise that is serving humanity? Yeah. Um, not a lot of folks are thinking about that, again, at the, that, dare I use the term, enterprise level, right? We're we're piecemealing it to do the best that we can in our stovepipes, but I think there's a bigger, a bigger question there. Um, and then, of course, the nature in which the dynamics will evolve is a largely spun up on 
you know, the the degree of and, and the characterization of competition and conflict. And um, my colleague at the the center, Robin Dickey, has a great series on space norms um, that is very complimentary, I think, and, and talks about a lot of these key issues that that are brought up, right? You know, how yeah. do you balance and manage the rise of commercial with uh, great power competition? How do you create something that is, you know, equitable and fair um, and, and sets the stage right? Um, an emerging topic we certainly are seeing, a problem topic that I don't think a lot of us, especially non-space folks, are recognizing is that uh, humans living in space is much closer than we think it is. Mm-hmm. And it will fundamentally challenge governance models on Earth. And I don't think we're thinking enough about that. Um, and, and then, of course, we can add all the scary, you know, techno tech, you know, techno AI and, and bio bio advancements in, in there as well. But, you know, I think pragmatically, it's really I think it's the governance models that we have to seriously think about. How about how about things like profiteering and commercialization? I think that's something that they, we see some parts of existing terrestrial industries really get into and really take advantage of or, you know, try to profiteer, essentially, you know, what kind of concerns do you think could stand out there? Because, you know, we're, we're wholeheartedly focused on proliferation of Leo, but commercialization of Leo, and, you know, all of this element that kind of comes into the spectrum, what do you think could happen there? I mean, literally, every bad thing that happens on Earth, if humanity's there, will extend it into space. So we Mm -hmm. should be concerned about it all, which I think is interesting, because space potentially offers us some interesting solutions to help refine and evolve ourselves on earth in these different models. Um, So again, I, I think people like to either put the blame on space or the pressure on space to fix all of earth's problems, but it's really like, we all got to do the inner work. And I do think there's some opportunities uh, that perhaps we could lay out better ways, uh, you know, to do things in space and then scale it back. That's something yeah. that I think the space side is is maybe missing from connecting it back and, and showing the way forward. But yeah, I mean, all that stuff exists. Profiteering, you know, trying to just do, uh, you know, uh, maybe a, a technically feasible solution, but really no long longevity there or using it as a proxy for a different part of a business model. Um, yeah. I think we all know <laughs> some good examples there. Um, so and then, of course, you add the nation state competition in there. Yeah. It just gets fuzzy really fast. Um, and that's okay. Like life is fuzzy, um, but space is, it's exciting. I mean, we've never had so much activity. Um, I think so much opportunity for a wider swath of participation across mm-hmm. the world, um, more transparency. And I think some really, um, I guess, inviting possible futures for the upcoming generations mm-hmm. um, that weren't there before. So it's not all bad, but I think we have to be realistic about like, just because people are seemingly either making money or doing science experiments, is it sustainable? Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. And so what do we need to do to, to put the right pillars in space so that we're actually going to have some longevity here? I mean, yeah. I, I, I think about like, you know, what people were thinking the future of space would be like and where we would be now in the 60s. And yeah. we're so far behind that dream. And I think we need to ask ourselves questions like, well, why? Why did that piddle out? It's because we didn't have a strong foundation. Yeah, no, that's fair. One of the things I was asking about 
for the uh, Pathfinder's Guide, that interactive guide, or or any of the research, I guess that you you've done, particularly looking into the future in a sense, or mapping, having ways and models of mapping it out, um, is you know you mentioned that there was two very critical areas. One is commercialization. We've seen a growth and expansion of commercialization, and you you mentioned that word balancing act. Like, how do we balance that um, with civil or you know public good kind of space? And then the other one was geopolitical concerns. You know, why are those two sticking out most? Because there's, as you know, there's a lot of different things that we can be concerned about when or to think about, I guess. But why why those two? Yeah, it's a multi-dimensional problem, and I think actually our foresight for the space enterprise as 10 factors just to show the nuance of it, but we wanted to keep it simple. And I think from all of our futures conversations, the degree in which space is going to be commercialized or not commercialized, and the role in which competition, and I mean competition, not just nation state, but competition between any players in space, will be fundamental factors in driving the dynamics and the nature of what it looks like in the future. Um, but yeah, I think that's, it, it, in general, those two were the biggest driving factors that that we saw in almost all of our conversations. Right. Interesting. So, so I guess also as, as I guess I can ask this as an American and we have some, we have some international folks here today, uh, Hussein and Matias, our producer, and we all know each other actually from the International Space University. And I know Kara, you did a little teaching there, maybe I think at one point, um, but you know, yep. from, a, inter, from an international perspective, how does the United States or the perspective of the space enterprise within the United States project out to the rest of the world? In other words, how are we working with our international partners, our international adversaries, or even just the new people that are coming into the space uh, world? Like I'm thinking United Arab Emirates, who just launched their, you know, Hope uh, space probe mission to Mars, I think, right? Um, how do we kind of situate ourselves as as Americans, in a sense, within that international global perspective? <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting, because I think... Um, that narrative is changing slightly, right? In the recognition that we aren't the only players and that we can't lead everywhere. And so this gets back to, you know, uh, who do we feel like are not only allies, but like-minded partners, emerging partners, um, and, and global stewards, even if we don't necessarily agree on everything. So it's a much more complicated discussion. Um, and, and also aerospace does do some international space work as well. Um, and I really enjoyed my time at International Space University teaching uh, the futures, the futures pieces as well. Um, I also think there's a really interesting kind of cross thread here with respect to futures and, and talking about foresighting in this discussion, because co-creating futures is um, something that really can increase uh, transparency and collaboration in ways that maybe isn't naturally happening in kind of the status quo systems. And we've really seen a lot of, you know, we've run several kind of international level futuring activities, and we've really seen it eye-opening, both in the sense of um, emerging players who maybe find opportunities for them to have a seat at the table where they maybe didn't feel like that, but also just understanding different perspectives and um, refining those perspectives in a more kind of collaborative fashion, right? Um, so I think foresighting is kind of a really interesting tool for modern, dare I say, democracy. It's about 
learning, understanding, exploring together. And it's a lot easier to do that on a future topic than it is on a here and now topic, if that makes sense. Like obviously, Mm. you know, that you have obligations within your organizations to deliver on something in the here and now. But if you're talking about the future, that's like safe space. And so I think that that also is, oh, no pun intended, safe space. But I think that that also is a really interesting opportunity as we start thinking about international cooperation, which we all Mm. know is going to be absolutely essential, especially as humanity stretches out into space. Yeah. You know, well, that's actually, so, you know, one of the things I, I love strategic foresight because partially I feel like it's this almost like the self-help guide. (laughs) And (laughs) I know most human beings on the planet can say like, personally, you have these big goals that like, I'm going to, you know, exercise more this year for my new year's resolution. So that is projecting into the future. Right. But the hard part is actually doing it. Um, And so in a sense, I guess the future is a safe space. I think when I'm trying to figure out is um, how do you use strategic foresight, not just as that map, but as almost like action takeaway points in a sense. And I think also when you're talking about um, looking at all these different players, is it okay for us to sort of say like, I I think we use this term kumbaya space, you know, (laughs) which is like, yay, we're all going to go to space and everything's going to be fine. Right. And how do we kind of move that sort of happy go lucky thinking, you know, positive thinking from the self-help kind of arena to like, no, these are real actionable steps that we need to take. And these are the reasons why. Oh yeah. These are really, really good (laughs) questions. I think A lot of times when traditional strategy is done, the person or decision maker kind of already knows what they want even before they start a program, whether using foresighting or not. And one of the things our team really tries to push forward is carving out the time and the space so that there are some smart folks pushing on new solutions before you jump into action. And I totally agree. I think one of the biggest... Uh, burdens of any sort of strategic planning is actually good implementation. Um, but it's even worse when your strategy's bad, right? If your your strategy's bad and you can't implement it, oof, that's that's not good. So you at least need to spend some time thinking about new creative ideas for approaching. And and that actually is hard because a lot of that is not tolerated. And so you have to kind of push and prove your value. So once you've done that though, I mean it's the same as as every hard hard problem to implement. It's getting good champions and getting folks on board. But then also, you know, this concept of like making decisions at the UN level for space on everything is just not realistic. Nobody's ever going to agree. So so that's where you have to kind of set like, you know, different norms of behavior, the, you know, put the really important stuff on the table to talk about internationally, uh, practice what you preach. That's really important. But then the rest I think is, you know, free market. And I think there's a lot to be said for having that kind of laissez-faire approach as well. The thing again, that, that I am concerned about is, is the public good and the governance model. And again, this isn't just applied to space. This is, I don't think we have it right with a lot of ways that some of the, the large scale technology applications are moving? Are we really thinking about the public and its best interest, thinking about privacy? Um, Mm -hmm. So I I think that's really where the balance comes in. And in my mind, governments really are the only ones that are incentivized, theoretically, to protect those public goods. Um, The private sector can't be expected to do that. They have shareholders to kind of meet. Things are getting better in terms of of having, I think, more of that considered in their decision making. And maybe that also is a cultural evolution that could could help propel things forward. But at the end of the day, that has to happen, at least in current form, at the government level. It's tricky, though. 
It's tricky because it, it, yeah. And I think, and, and I think you know, the, the thing that makes it most tricky is that it varies from person to person and varies from government to government. So, yeah, so let's 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 ask you as somebody who has uh, an insight into this foresighting element. What do you think that could be a scenario in the future to you that's most unpreferable? Oh, um, with respect to space or writ large? <laughs> space, space. Yeah, space. for space. I mean, I think the obvious one that this is a great example of, I think, limited action that we've been able to take is large swaths of orbits that are unusable because we were not good stewards of the space. Mm. Um, that would be economically damaging. It would ruin a lot of critical um, assets and operations for weather, for mm. food production. I mean, it would have pretty large ramifications. And I, you know, again, I don't spend my time predicting futures, but like there's a very high likelihood. It is just a matter of time. And yeah. we have not taken the kind of action that would be needed to prevent something like that. So that's my worst case scenario is space is not usable. And then our ability to continue our expansion out to the moon and to Mars and beyond are limited because we made bad choices. So what's that? What's that worst case action? I'm just trying to action that you need to take in order. I mean, it's just, again, it's good stewards. If you're going to put something up, make sure you can, you know, bring it down, make sure that you have onboard autonomous um, maneuver capability Make sure that there's good systems for doing space traffic management control. If you're going to mm. put 10,000 satellites up, show me that you know how to manage them and, and ex- tell me how you're going to do cleanup when a collision is going to happen because one is going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And there's many great companies who are working this. So I, I actually am kind of optimistic that there will be solutions for it, but there isn't necessarily an implementable one at scale right now. This gets back to your question about, you know, once the cat's out of the bag, it's really hard to put it back in. Yeah, and this yeah. is why the value of foresighting comes in, because there are some big infrastructures that are being built right now. I would put space in that bin that is going to drive how we all operate and how we all communicate and how we all do business in the future. We got to get it right. Yeah, so I'm, I'm also thinking... More- I just have one more follow, follow up, up, Kelly. Let me let me because she said cats out of the bag. And I'm curious, you worked on a very interesting project, which was um, extracting oxygen from from lunar soil. You know, in that case, when you think about the terminology cats out of the bag, do you think in the future that people who are doing this for the sake of developing technology like yourself, um, that we should develop technology that could help us? in the future, but don't necessarily see all the potential ways that this technology could be utilized. Should that thinking shift uh, from from an engineering slash strategy perspective um, from people who are part of these technology development cycles? Oh my God, absolutely. I think it should be inherent in every every new capability technology that we bring to the table as just part of the process. It should be embedded in the design process. And mm-hmm. and actually it's it's it it shouldn't slow down the design process because it actually might add efficacy to business models or mm-hmm. to um different ways it can be connected to other parts of the ecosystem. So I think a lot of companies look at that and they say, oh that's just going to slow me down in development. And I actually would pretty much disagree. I think it's going to ensure the longevity of your business model so that you're not causing these you know, huge negative disruptions, or if you are, 
you're 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 planning ahead and providing mitigations that are workable. So mm-hmm. I actually think it provides business stability, um, but it also provides, I think, the public for for really having a, a debate about well, is this good for us? And and mm-hmm. having I think more situational awareness when they're in this ecosystem. I would say a lot of us don't have a lot of control when mm-hmm. we turn on our phone or we're on the computer. Like there's only a couple companies that control what we do and all of their agreements are pretty much the same 10,000 pages that you sign off and accept without reading what they are. So, mm. you know, I think designing that and bringing, bringing it back into kind of public critical thinking and discussion and debate about how we want to evolve and roll out these systems uh, is absolutely necessary. Yeah, I mean, and that's that involves a lot of education, I think, too, uh, as far as getting the public on board of understanding space stuff. <laughs> for lack of a better word. Um, what's interesting about the outer space is it's an undefined territory in a sense. And this is what how it is so much different than planet Earth. I mean, you can see planet Earth on a globe and see all the different nation states carved out. Whereas when you're in outer space, it's just a big globe. Um, and that speaks to humanity rather than almost the nation state, I guess. Um, and so you mentioned something about, I think, you know, we are going to have to face in the future, maybe looking at different kinds of, I guess, mechanisms for governance. Um, Mm -hmm. and I guess in your opinion, you know, are, are people thinking about that? Are the experts kind of going, oh my gosh, you know, are, are we, can we still think from the perspective of the nation state or is there a different way to think about territories? Yeah, well, actually, so this came up in one of our recent efforts, which we're just getting ready to drop a summary report of a pilot study we ran. Um, So kind of over the course of, you know, a variety of kind of hard strategic problems we were solving in space and, and national security, we started to recognize this, this problem of thinking about the future through a single lens vice multiple lenses and grappling with uncertainty. And so we made a hypothesis um, uh, basically that said, you know, the United States needs better approaches for thinking about how it's going to drive the futures at once. And does it actually, has it even articulated what that long view future at once is, you know, 50, 100 years out? And, and we brought together over uh, 50 kind of independent artists and futurists and strategic thinkers and academics to kind of grapple with this problem. And that question on the nation state was one of our upfront assumptions that if if a nation state is its entity as it is today, the concept of it is even going to exist in that time frame. There was a lot of debate about it. Um, and I think, you know, we can have a discussion about what this other alternative model is, but I think you know, it's important. We are a nation state now. There are nation states around the world that do their own kind of independent thinking about what they or should be doing about what their people want if they're more of a democratic model. And and are there ways in which we can better navigate kind of those aspirational future states, all while grappling with heightened politicalization and turbulent um, implementation of these different strategies. So yeah, so we we called this kind of pilot program Project North Star, which kind of alludes to these aspirational future states that we want to create um, and then work our way backwards. Well, how do you do that? How do you do that in a politicized environment? Um, and kind of what we found on the way of doing these different uh, force activities is that there are these, you know, 
looking at kind of at a macro level, the changing environment and what that might mean, looking at the lens of, okay, in a perfect world, regardless of constraints today, what do we think we want? What, what at our deepest core are our common values? Um, and what we found is actually, there's not a lot of disagreement on what that is. I mean, it's, you know, we want a better future for our children and we want to figure out how we can uplift and provide equity and sustainability. I mean, there's, there's like these common things that we all want. It's how we get there is where we disagree. And so we worked through different kind of macro grand strategies and focused on what enabling elements of those strategies come up across each of those future states and serve those future states. And there's actually a core set, I think in our kind of pilot program, we found like 28 universal enabling elements that you could invest in regardless of what grand strategy you chose, regardless of what implementation you chose. And you could as, you know, you could go to Congress and have them like mile mark, we're making progress on this. I don't care how you implement it. I don't care what your political views are. Like these are core things as a nation that we need to be consistently moving towards to achieve those aspirational goals. And you take the politics out of it. And so I'm really proud of that because that was a hypothesis. Um, there's a lot of also argument on this concept of grand strategy. Is it implementable? Is it doable? Have we ever had one? I don't think it matters. I think what's more important is we clearly are living in an era where we need better approaches for doing strategy. and. Foresighting could be one way to do that. Maybe there's others, but we should have the conversation. So you, you said 28 points? <laughs> 28 universal enablers. And those are just like, yeah. this is a pilot program. So this is not comprehensive. This is not, and this is some something that really needs to be iterative, right? You get better at it over time. But we found, you know, things that we can be doing as a nation. And of course, education, including futures literacy, was one of those enabling elements that you could invest in over time and get and reap the benefits of those aspirational North Stars, regardless of kind of political uh, movement. Yeah. I mean, you know, I just also, I'm just curious if you had any thoughts or like, I know we're kind of going to be wrapping up soon here, but um, what would be cool for other parts of the world to think about? Because I know we're looking at it right now and your job in a sense is looking at it from the U.S. perspective, as well as within that international arena. But, you know, how can other people out there think about this? Yeah, well, no, and I think our, the framework that we're presenting is actually pretty generic. It's not necessarily, you know, only for the United States. It's it's basically for any nation, any group of people. Uh, foresighting can be done, as you had mentioned, at the individual lo- level as well. Um, I, I think so. the The big thing is, is like, well, how do most people don't even know what foresighting is? And it's for I would argue foresighting is not really accessible. Um, it's really only like in nuanced academic circles that it's really brought up. It's not part of like the, you know, the broader kind of um, discussion points or, and so I think just, again, futures literacy writ large globally is probably a huge thing that, that I would certainly encourage folks like to, to start thinking about pursuing. I know I've definitely been thinking about writing a children's book um, Mm -hmm. about this because I think uh, it starts young and, you know, you, you have to have that thinking and you have to weave it into almost everything you do. And, and that's really hard to change decision makers who haven't had that training. And for us to do good futures work, we need decision makers on the other side who understand the process, who understand the reason why we have to grapple with uncertainty. And so I think to change that, 
unfortunately, you got to start. You got to start early. Right. Or maybe so I, flex- guess, I, I was guess. I was also thinking flexibility and adaptability is our key components of thinking in the long term, in a sense. Um, yeah. yeah. So the that okay. So the, well, that's another topic, right? When we talk oh. and we run into this on the engineering side all the time. Like, of course, you need to have flexibility and adaptability baked in, but flexible to what? Adaptable to what? And is it affordable? Mm-hmm. That is the hard mm-hmm. problem, mm-hmm. right? It is a very hard problem. I, I just I mean, curious I, too. What, I, sorry, I was going to keep interrupting. Yeah, One more little yeah, tiny no, thing okay. follow up is um, yeah, I was just curious yeah. too. Like you know, you you mentioned because you mentioned this thing of um, getting the next generation on board and thinking in these more strategic foresight, strategic ways. I mean, do you come up against you know you you do have to work with clients like the Department of Defense, for example. I mean, that have very very clear objectives or other clients. I, I'm just you know using an example, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Um, you know, do you find that sometimes that it is hard to push that status quo or do you have any like little tricks of the trade that you use to get people? Oh to my God. Yeah. Way? Well, that's a whole other podcast. Yes. I mean, it, I would say every day is a battle against the status quo. It's not easy. I mean, the work we essentially doing are seeding transformation, it's change mm-hmm. management. Um, and I think honestly, when I first started this, I didn't realize how much grit you had to have and persistence. Um, it, it is something that you can't just expect to walk in a room, explain the concept of foresighting, have somebody run through an activity and have them walk away and be 100% in. Mm-hmm. This is a continual engagement to change hearts and minds. Um, I think they, there's like some psychology study that said like by the time it's like seven times a charm or something, right? Like people have to be exposed to a concept seven times to not be completely abrasive to it. And so this is a process I've noticed like when you get folks in a room using the foresighting tools together, it's an aha moment because they're Mm -hmm. actively doing it. Then when they come back and they do it again, they're really excited about it because they remember how they felt during it. Then, right, you've got to keep building that up so that they're actually looking at those nuggets of insight and wanting to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest leap because you can call out, you can have all these insights, you can have everybody nod their head that something needs to be done. But then when it comes to the table of, man, I need to, I need to actually have an organizational change. That's the biggest one, man. People do not like reorgs, especially in the government. Um. Well, I mean, putting, putting your putting your money where 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 your mouth is, right? It, it, it's it's that similar analogy that comes into perspective when it comes to the commercial side. Is that oftentimes, you know, people will go out there um, and say one thing, but won't be able to keep up with it. So you know, they'll dilly dally or they'll use the yes. tools in their toolbox to to try and get that out. But here's a here's an interesting question for you. And I'm very curious to hear what's the most provocative thesis that you and your fellows have disagreements on at the moment because mm. of the way that you guys are thinking per se. You're not yeah. all foresighters, right? So Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Um, I think a big one is the role in which the government needs to play in terms of seeding a sustainable ecosystem, mm. not just near Earth, but cislunar and beyond. Mm. I think they've taken a rather what I would consider passive role um, and letting the private sector and technology take the lead. Um, but there are some fundamental pillars that need to be there and need to be laid out and need to be synchronized mm. of all these different stovepipes and pops of you know pots of money for there to be any hope that there's consistency, you know, out out through the years. And of course, benefit back to humanity. I think we're all very naive that like the private sector is going to get us there. Um, 
for the degree in which I think we want space to serve and to be part of this extending kind of ecosystem, we've got a lot of groundwork and leadership that needs to happen, in my opinion, on on the government level and the private sector level. Like it needs to happen both places. And there's just a lot of like technically focused discussion right now of like, well, you know, the private sector will fix that for us. And Mm. it's like, no, you have to, you have to guide that. And there needs to be, I think, a little bit more thought about the foundations that need to be present. So for me, that's the biggest contention point is like, it's not just government buying more commercial, it's Mm -hmm. government making sure that they're helping seed and build ecosystems that are sustainable, that are helping Mm -hmm. evolve new businesses, Mm -hmm. that are helping connect the dots between different stovepipes. It's a much bigger problem than I think they're, they're, taking it as with the current yeah. policy right now yeah it can't it can't like i i guess from a from our commercial it can't just be b2g anymore it has to be intertwined with b2g to b to c and then yeah. back to g and then just keep running that circle over and over and over again as yep. much as you can okay that's inter- interesting um so here's a question for you that we ask every single individual that comes on our podcast what would you consider doing in order for having the humanity to continue uh, moving space in a forward direction? And as we like to call it, making humanity move space forward. Oh, I love this question. Well, I mean, I don't want to be self-serving, but I certainly think everybody could use a little dab of strategic foresight in every aspect of of moving space forward for a variety of reasons. I think first and foremost, it's it's a really useful tool to help us think about new creative solutions together. Um, you know, one person can't solve the world's problems and we all have different facets. And I think it really can do a great job of bringing those folks together. But I think it also can help us uh, kind of anticipate and prevent some of those um some of those cliffhangers that maybe we're not not really seeing. I mean, space is hard. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're we're figuring out propulsion pretty well, but like, like there's other hard things. I mean, humans in space is a very challenging problem, and and again, these unanticipated consequences of rolling out new technology or building things before they come. Um, again, foresighting can help make sure that those are kind of addressed and synchronized, and and also help us reach. Uh, reach beyond, you know, get, get us to a moon, sh- a real moonshot, moonshot right. Yeah. Um, rather than this incremental kind of stuff. So anyways, I know it's a self-serving answer, but I'd say strategic foresight. <laughs> hey, no, they, I don't think there's ever such thing as self-serving because if you're thinking about the future, you gotta be, you gotta be thinking about the future where everybody is together in a matter of speaking. So, um, thank you so much for joining us. I think it's been a fantastic conversation. I personally have learned more about strategic foresight and I have a million different ways to mm-hmm. now try and bring organizational change anywhere I possibly can, wherever I engage. So I think yeah. this has been an eye-opening conversation for me. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of my team. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. And I, you know, one of the things you use the word operating systems. So, you know, I love that word. It's, it's, it can be applied to all facets of life and from the personal to outer, outer space and beyond. <laughs> so yes, thank you, thanks Kat. for having me. Yeah, it was so fun to talk about both space and foresighting in the same conversation. So really appreciated it. Awesome. Uh, if you're still listening, a word from your sponsors, which... Which is essentially us. 
Our team works really hard to bring you these enlightening conversations about about the future of space exploration. And yes, you are vital for fueling our podcast and making sure that we don't disintegrate into the vacuum of of outer space. So if you like Space Forward, give us a thumbs up. And if you you love love Space space Forward, Forward, well, then share that love and recommend this podcast to a friend. To a friend. 